Well, if you would, go ahead and stand with me as we open our Bibles to John chapter 18, verse 12. John chapter 18, verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside of that at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not the one, of, one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. And now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me that I'm, what I said to them. They know what I said. When he said, said these things, one of the officers standing, at the, standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But what if I say is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once the rooster crowed. Let's pray. Father, our whole life rests on this one truth that the life of one is more expedient than the life of the people. And Father, we recognize that it is Christ's life and only Christ's life that can serve such expedience. And Lord, I pray that you would let our hope be rooted and grounded in this great truth. And that it would be anchor, the anchor of our soul in such a way that we would not look to ourselves and be overconfident of our own sufficiency and lead to a denial of you in the midst of moments of despair. But that we would have such confidence that, we, that, these truths are, that this is a true thing. That we, like John, will go and behold the face of Christ. Lord, let us bear witness to what Christ has said, even as he has spoken to us through this word. Let us hold firm unto the end. And in the moments of despair, when we are tempted to deny you, strengthen us with such a love for you, such a beholding of Christ, that we draw near to you and proclaim your glory until the end of the earth. 
And Father, we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we are on our way to Easter, April 17th. To get there, we are going to endure a betrayal, an unjust arrest, three illegal hearings before religious leaders, three illegal trials before state officials, three denials by a friend, false charges solicited by those representing the law, a predetermined verdict based on lies, a regret that results in a hanging, and the release of a really bad guy that leads to a man without sin being mocked, beaten, ridiculed, and crucified. In other words, there's going to be a lot of bad stuff to happen before we get to the great things he hath done. So where are we in our text? Well, it's the wee hours of the morning on the day that Christ will be crucified. The religious establishment doesn't have the governmental authority to crucify him. And to get Rome to do it, they've got to prove that he's guilty of sedition, that he is somehow or another a threat to the Roman government in two separate trials with the day between those two trials. Now, they can't do that. They can't do it. So what are these rule keepers going to do? What can they do? Well, they are going to set aside laws that forbid the, anybody being arrested at night. We've got to put that aside. And they're going to justify that, by the way. That you realize they have to do that. Because if they don't, they're going to set off a riot among all these Galileans that are in town for the Passover. They must set aside the law that requires a day in between the trials because it's imperative this be done very quickly. Judas, who left the upper room earlier when Christ was observing Passover with the disciples, has received his 30 pieces of silver from the religious authorities. Now, 30 pieces of silver, it's not a whole lot. But the significance of that is that's the price in the Old Testament for a servant goaded by an ox that's now considered useless. Christ has not done what Judas expected. He didn't use his power to organize the overthrow of Rome. So Judas brings members of the Sanhedrin and the temple guard and a cohort of Roman soldiers to the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives, knowing this is where Christ comes often to pray. If Christ is going to be anywhere, this is where you're going to find him. And so that's where he leads this search party to. And they're scattered throughout the mount, in the dark, with torches and lanterns and weapons, expecting it to be difficult to not only find him, but to arrest him. I mean, they've tried to do that now on three previous occasions and have failed every time. So they're kind of stunned. They're stunned when they come upon him in the dark and he asks them, whom do you seek? And they said, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am. They didn't expect that. It causes them to take a step back. Christ had used a, a whip earlier that week to run thousands out of the temple area for abusing what the Lord had given them as a place of worship. His authority and his power could be a real problem for these guys. Not to mention his popularity. 
I mean, after he raised Lazarus from the dead, this is the area where thousands and thousands and thousands of people covered it just four days earlier, saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is an extremely dangerous mission because they didn't know that Christ was actually waiting for them. They didn't know his hour had come. And he actually plans to go with them. As the Lord had foreordained centuries before these guys were ever born. But they didn't know that. They don't know that until he reprimands Peter. For cutting off the ear of Malchus. He, he was trying to show his bravery. By pulling out his bakarian. And, and he takes a swipe at this, this servant. The doulos. Servant of the high priest. The guy ducks. He catches his ear, cuts it off. And so these guys now realize that Christ is going to be very cooperative. How do you know? Well, he, he reaches down and takes the ear and heals it. And then he turns to him and says, look, you, you're not going to arrest Peter for doing that because Malchus's ear is fine. You have no claim on any of these guys. They haven't done anything. I'm the one you're looking for. I'm the one that you're seeking to arrest. So what John wants us to see here is that Christ is in complete control of all of this. The Roman guard led by their, their captain, Kaliakas. Kelioi is uh, the word for a thousand. And so this commander would indicate that he is over a thousand soldiers. Along with the temple police, the Jewish police along with authorities from the Sanhedrin. They're all members of this search party. And it's with the permission of Christ, the permission of Christ, that they arrest him and take him to Annas. Now, why Annas? Annas is the godfather. He's the godfather. He was appointed high priest by Quirinius, the Roman governor of Syria. You remember him? Back when we were going through the incarnate arrival of Christ into Bethlehem just back in December. As Christ is entering humanity, Quirinius is elevating Annas to the position of high priest. And he's going to serve in that capacity for 10 years. And as former presidents often retain that title, they still refer to him as the high priest. Now, he's also the father of five sons and a grandson who will serve as high priest. In addition to his son-in-law, Joseph Caiaphas, who is the current high priest. So, why are these various high priests? Well, you've got to understand, Annas is the Marlon Brando of the day. Numbers 35 said a high priest was a high priest for life. So, when Annas speaks... That's the way it is. <laughs> However, the Romans didn't like one man to have too much power. So they imposed term limits. Annas's way around that is to keep members of his family in that office. And so five of his sons will serve in that capacity. Plus Caiaphas, his son-in-law, who currently has the title. He currently holds that position. But let me tell you, Annas, the wealthy, influential, well-educated member of the elite class, he's the one with the power. 
That's why they take Christ to Annas first. Matter of fact, just make a little footnote. Uh, it's to Annas and Caiaphas that Peter and John are taken in Acts 4. And they say to the Godfather and his son-in-law, it's in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom you crucified. And the Lord raised from the dead that this lame man is healed. The stone you rejected has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else. And Anna said to Peter and John, listen, I prohibit you from preaching in his name. And Peter and John stand up to him. They say, we, we can't help but speak about what we've seen and heard. Can't help but do it. And people began to praise the Lord. Peter and John stood up to the Godfather and to the current high priest, Caiaphas, who's the head of the Sanhedrin. Now, you understand that the Sanhedrin is made up of 70 Sadducees and Pharisees. They are the governing body of Israel. The high priest is the 71st member. He's, he's kind of like the, the speaker of the house. And they all have these priestly apartments around this courtyard. And this is where the trial begins. And John gives us this little footnote. You know, it was Caiaphas, by the way, who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Why does John put that in there? Well, back in chapter 11, Caiaphas said, this man has to die, talking about Christ. John wants you to know this trial has nothing to do with justice. This is a kangaroo court. There is nothing just about it. We're going to give you a trial and then we're going to crucify you. You understand? The decision was made before the trial began. If this man doesn't die, there's going to be an uprising. And if there's an uprising among the Jews, it's going to cause the Romans to take away what freedoms they have given us. The freedom to govern ourselves under their domain as a vassal nation. And if they step in and take that away from us, the Sanhedrin is going to go away. We can't allow that to happen. So it's better for one man to die than for all of us to suffer. I mean, Annas and his family are the ones who worked with Rome to allow for the Israelites to be taxed because it benefited them. Annas and his family are the ones who have corrupted worship at the temple. They are the ones who were most affected by Christ cleansing the temple on two occasions, at the beginning of his ministry and at the end of his ministry, just a few days before this arrest is made. Christ called them, called the whole area there a den of thieves. Who are the thieves? It's you, Annas. It's you and your sons and your son-in-law, Caiaphas. You're the thieves. And so Caiaphas says in chapter 11, it's just better for this guy to die than for the whole nation of Israel to perish. Now, this is the guy who's going to oversee the trial. How would you like to go to court and stand before a judge who said prior to your trial, you need to die? Randy, did you ever have that happen? All the people that you've prosecuted, did you ever walk into court and have a judge say, we're going to execute this guy here, now present your case? <laughs> Simon Peter followed Jesus. And so did the other disciple. Another disciple. Who's that? 
That's how John refers to himself. You never find him put his name inside this gospel. Not because he's ashamed. He just doesn't feel worthy. We see this again in John 20 when it says Peter and the other disciple. <laughs> Who was the other disciple? John. John. Where are they going? To the tomb. Now, since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. See, John's given us this, this drama of the trials alongside the drama of Peter's denials. They're all happening at the same time. We see the faithfulness of the Lord alongside the unfaithfulness of men. And so Peter, he, he's standing outside the door. The other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door. And whatever he said to her, he was able to now bring Peter in where everybody else was. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, now you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I'm not. No, I'm not. So the servants and officers had made a, a charcoal fire because it was cold. And they're standing around warming themselves. And Peter was also with them, standing there, warming himself around this fire. Now, this first denial of Christ by Peter, it's kind of hard to explain. Because this doorkeeper that allows John to come into where the trial is going to take place, he goes into their midst, and yet she keeps Peter out. When John comes back and says, hey, I want to let my buddy in, she's not asking him this question with hostility. She's being cynical about it. And Peter, you know, he's not familiar with these kind of surroundings. He's not comfortable in this arena. And he may have just felt like it was safer to distance himself from Christ, not knowing exactly what is going to happen in the next few moments. But once he lies, it's just easier to keep lying. When he denies Christ again in verse 27, the text says a rooster crows. Now, there was a tradition that came out of the Protestant Reformation that was meant to make a statement about Peter. Uh, the statement they wanted to make was that he was not the first pope. If you go back and you look in history, you find that Gregory the Great, Gregory the First, was um, in the, during the Middle Ages, this was 590 A.D., uh, he is really the first one that they declare to be, he's, he's the Bishop of Rome, and the first one they declare to be kind of the, the primary leader of all the churches. And at some point, as Catholicism is emerging, they try to go back through their record books and, and, and try to uncover as many of the names of the Bishop of Rome as they can, going all the way back to Peter. They can't find all of the names, but the best they could determine, you know, Gregory the Great, who's actually the first one who's known as the Papa of the Church, becomes like the 70, 72nd member of the papacy because they're making Peter the first one. Well, when these protestants, when these Protestant reformers are standing up and saying, whoa, 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 we're not going to have the sale of indulgences. You know, we're not going to, to have uh, uh, this um, uh, breaking of scripture in a number of areas, including making a man the head of the church. What they do is they want Christ to be recognized as the head of the church, as the Bible says, not any man, especially one that has 
denied him three times. And, and some people uh, believe that, that Peter actually lied about six times because it says before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. So some try to add that together and come up with six. But during the Protestant Reformation, as a sign that Peter never considered himself the head of the church. Peter never considered himself the papa of the church. Peter understood he was a fallen man redeemed by the grace of a merciful God who recognized Christ and Christ alone as the head of the church. What they did is they placed in the highest spot in town on top of the steeple of their churches, they placed a weather vane in the shape of a rooster. And it was making a statement. You ever seen this? You ever seen a weather vane in the shape of a, of a rooster on barns or on steeples or, or on the highest points of town? It's a statement that to remind us that Peter, as a man, blew whatever direction the wind was blowing. And our faith is not in a man that does that. But we trust in Christ and Christ alone. Some have wondered why John was known to the high priest and not Peter. If you stop and think about it, who was John's mother? Salome. Right. Who is she related to? Mary. Who is Mary related to? Elizabeth. Who's Elizabeth? She's the wife of Zechariah, who was a priest. Remember Elizabeth and Zechariah? These are the parents of John the Baptist. So, so this disciple... His uncle, Zechariah, would have been well-known by members of the Sanhedrin. Or it could be that, that, that James and John's fishing business was so successful, they used to deliver fish to, to, this, uh, to this group of individuals and would have been known that way. We're not told how he was known, but he was known to the high priest. And Peter was not. Peter's just a Galilean fisherman up north. When John sees Peter was following, but he was left out, he speaks to the girl at the door about letting him in. Now, she's just a servant. She's just a servant girl. She's nobody to be feared. And yet Peter lies to her about being associated with Christ. I don't think he planned to lie, did he? I doubt it. It's just that her question caught him off guard. And now once he lies, it's just easier to keep lying than to come clean. So in a matter of moments, poor Peter, he's gone from boasting about how great he is when he draws his Macarion and says, let's get him, Lord. I told you I'd die with you. Let's go for it. He's gone from that to being a liar and a denier and a coward. John lets us know it's springtime because at night after the sun goes down, it gets really cold. We're in the wee hours of the morning. A charcoal fire is blazing and Peter is trapped between his lies to man and his love for the Lord. And the trials continue. The high priest, still referring to, referring to Annas here, questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. In other words, rather than bringing charges and presenting evidence, <laughs> what's Annas trying to do? He, he's seeking to have Christ incriminate himself, which, by the way, is illegal. And Christ is well aware of the law that prohibits any questions requiring you to testify against yourself. You know, our Constitution is based upon Judeo-Christian principles. And what in our Constitution keeps us from being forced 
to give testimony against ourselves. What's it called? It's called the Fifth Amendment, right? You were supposed to present evidence of guilt, not try to garner a confession through a series of questions. So this entire line of questioning by Annas is illegal. Just like the arrest of Christ during the night was illegal. Just like the timing of these trials is illegal. And so Christ calls Annas out on this. Watch how he exposes him. He said, I've spoken openly to the world. Openly. I have always taught in the synagogue and in the temple where all Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. So what do you ask me? Ask those who've heard what I've said. They'll tell you. They know what I've said. In other words, you're conducting this trial in secret. I've been very open. I've been very honest. I've been out in the light speaking, not here under the cover of darkness. You're the one breaking the law, Annas. You're the one who has illegally arrested me at night. You're the one who has illegally brought me to trial without the Sanhedrin present. You're the one who is illegally asking me questions that, that uh, would garner me to testify against myself. I've taught openly. I've taught in the synagogues. I've taught in the temple. I've taught in public. You are the one who is conducting an illegal trial under the cover of darkness. Everyone's heard what I've said. I'm not involved in covert activity. Unlike what you're doing in this kangaroo court where the verdict has been determined before the trial ever begins. I mean, he's calling Annas out. He's revealing his hypocrisy. And the attending officer understands this rebuke. He understands it. I mean, Christ is not being uncooperative here. He's highlighting the sinfulness of man who is in need of what? Redemption. When he had said this, these things, one of the officers standing by struck him with his hand. Is that how you answer the high priest? Make another note. To strike a prisoner who's not been convicted of a crime is illegal. But as Peter would later testify, when he was reviled, when he was scorned and abused, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten them. He simply committed himself to him, the Lord, who judges justly. 1 Peter 2.23 Christ doesn't lose his cool here. Nor does he retaliate. The Greek says, to give a blow to the face. They sucker punched him. Slapped him. And how did he respond? He said, if I'm wrong about proper legal procedures here, I mean, go ahead and correct me, but on what grounds do you strike me? Where's the law that says you can do that? I've not been convicted of anything yet. You're not allowed by law to do what you just did. He's right. Absolutely right. This is not going well for Annas. doesn't matter that he's the godfather. He's in a real pickle here. And he knows it. So he sends Christ off to Caiaphas. Now the next trial isn't recorded by John because Matthew, Mark, and Luke have given us those details Members of, of the Sanhedrin under the direction of Caiaphas, that's the reigning high priest, have convened to bring formal charges. Now, let me just give you a footnote here on the Sanhedrin. It comes from Numbers 11. 
Remember when Moses was bringing the children of Israel out of Egypt and taking them to the promised land and they were in the wilderness for 40 years? While they're out there and they're moving from pasture to pasture to pasture, there are two and a half million people and whenever there's a dispute among neighbors or whenever there's a dispute among tribesmen, whenever there's a dispute, even within a family, they're going to Moses. Moses, Moses, tell us who's right. Tell us what is the right thing to do. Tell my neighbor to stop doing this. Tell my family member to stop doing this. You know, they're all going to Moses and he's becoming very weary in addressing all their issues. And so the Lord instructs him to set aside 70 men who will serve as judges. Moses, you don't need to resolve every dispute. Choose men who are men of truth, who are not going to do this for dishonest gain. They hate dishonest gain. Who rule with integrity. Men who are experts in the law, who will judge justly. Look for those men. You appoint those 70 men. And so when the Sanhedrin was established following their return from Babylon, you got to fast forward now from, from 1440 when, when Moses is leading them through the wilderness to now a thousand years later. They have been taken into exile to Babylon. They are now returning to Jerusalem. And so they're forming what's called the Sanhedrin, this, this council of 70. And they're going to say Numbers 11 is the basis for which we do this. And they're going to be made up of those Sadducees and those Pharisees. And Matthew 26 says, Now the chief priest, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death. Now, all the council doesn't mean all 70 members were present. It just means all who were present agreed, we're going to seek false testimony. What is that? What is that? It's illegal. It's illegal. You can't hire witnesses to bear false testimony. It's illegal to bring a man up on false charges. It's illegal to pay someone to lie. I mean, how many laws have they broken to this point? I don't know. It doesn't really matter, does it? Because this is not about justice. It's not about justice. Yet things are not going well. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. In other words, they, 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 they can't get their accusations to, to agree with one another. They're, they're all making up stuff about Christ, but you've got to have two or three witnesses that agree, and they can't find that until, until finally two guys come forward, and they both said the same thing. They both said, yeah, this is the fellow who said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Is that true? Yes. Back in John 2, Christ said, tear down this temple and I will raise it up again in three days. Now he's talking about his body. He said, well, how were they supposed to know that? Why, why does he talk like that? Well, I mean, they think it's the temple over here that Herod's been working on for 40 years. See, when they came back from Babylon and, and the, the Babylonians had destroyed the temple, it destroyed the walls around Jerusalem and they're rebuilding the walls, they're rebuilding the temple, it's nowhere near what Solomon had built. And so Herod, when he is in charge of, of maintaining peace among this vassal nation within the Roman Empire, one of the ways that he's trying to appease them is by continue to enhance the temple area. So they've been working on this thing for 40 years. 
That's what these guys think Christ is talking about. But what is the temple? What is it? It's a shadow. It's a shadow that was meant to prepare us for the substance of Christ. So well, how, how's that? Well, the temple is where the Lord revealed his Shekinah glory, right? In the Holy of Holies, right? The fullness of his glory is seen in Christ. The temple was a place where sacrifices were made as atonement for men. Yom Kippur. The fullness of which is accomplished in the atoning death that Christ will die. The temple is a place where men could come to worship the Lord, which will be accomplished in Christ. So he says, tear down this temple. They're coming after him. They're angry with him. He says, tear down this temple, this incarnate flesh, in which the fullness of God dwells. And I'll raise it up again in three days. Now, what they're going to do is they will misstate that claim. They will misconstrue that context. They will distort the spiritual significance of that point in order to fabricate an accusation against him. And the high priest arose and said, Do you answer nothing speaking to Christ? Are you not going to respond to what these men have said? Why does he not respond? Randy, tell him, a defendant... As a defendant, you're not supposed to speak. Your lawyer is supposed to speak, right? He has no lawyer. His lawyer is supposed to point out the fallacies of this testimony. There is no lawyer present. I put you under oath by the living God. Now you tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Christ has broken no laws here. So what's he doing? The best they can hope for is to get him to admit to being God in the flesh. And if they can get that, now they can bring a charge of blasphemy against him. And in Leviticus 24, verse 16, it says, The one who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. This is what they're trying to get to. What's the problem with it? The problem is his claim to deity is only blasphemy if it's not true. Jesus says, it is as you have said. Therefore, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Oh my goodness. That's all the high priest needed at that point. He begins to tear his robe and he says, he's spoken blasphemy. What further, witness, what further need do we have of witnesses? Trial is over. What do you all think? And they answered, we think he's deserving of death. And then they spit in his face. The supreme insult according to Deuteronomy 25.9. And they beat him unmercifully. And the officers struck him with the palms of their hands. He's been tried twice. Has been found innocent of breaking any law. But declared guilty for telling the truth. That he is both divine and human. Through two trials, they found nothing that is illegal in his speech or in his life. There are blasphemers present, but those are the accusers. 
And the blasphemers are accusing him of blaspheming for telling the truth. The next trial is recorded in Luke 22. Following the second trial, Christ is taken to Caiaphas' dungeon beneath the Sanhedrin. Now, there should be 24 hours between these two convictions. However, there's not time for that. So they reconvene the Sanhedrin within just a matter of hours. As soon as it was day, probably around 6 a.m., that's how they began to, to count their hours. They had watches at night, first watch, second watch, third watch, fourth night watch, and then as the sun came up, they began to count the days by hours until you got to sunset, 6 p.m., and then they went back to watches. Well, this is as soon as it was day, around probably 6 a.m., the elders of the people, both chief priests and scribes, came together and they lead Christ into their council. Now, they're going to have him testify once again that he is both divine and human. They do have a problem, though. Here's the problem. Pilate, Pilate won't kill him for that alone. They've got to convince Pilate, if you don't cooperate with us, we are going to engage in civil disorder. And Pilate, you can't afford that. You cannot afford that. You'll lose your job, buddy. You'll be replaced in a heartbeat if we get out of hand. And so the Sanhedrin asked, if you are the Christ, tell us. Christ said, if I tell you, you will by no means believe. I mean, there's really no reason to speak to you. The verdict has already been determined, hasn't it? Are you then the son of God? He said, you rightly say so. You rightly say that I am. What further testimony do we need? I mean, we've heard it for ourselves from his own mouth. He is God. You know, a rabbi a few years ago questioned whether or not the trials of Christ in Scripture were truly historic. You know why? He said there are just so many irregularities. One commentator said that he counted up over 20 injustices that take place in order to crucify one without sin. You know, John tells us that, that Peter is warming himself around the fire as all of this is, is going on. And someone said, uh, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? No, no, I'm not. Problem is there's a relative of Malchus there. Remember Malchus, the one who ducked and got his ear cut off? And he said, you know what? I think you are that guy that was in the garden. I was there. I saw you. You looked dead on him. You're that guy that pulled out that Macarion and took a swipe at my relative. You tried to kill him. And Peter says, no, that was not me. Evidently, the pressure was on because Mark tells us that Peter swore. He took an oath. By the name of God Almighty, I'm telling you, it's not me. And just as he said that, he hears the rooster crow. Luke tells us that they recognized Peter's Galilean accent. That's why they insisted he is one of those that was with Jesus. And Peter adamantly denies him. 
adamantly denies it. Absolutely not. And then he hears the rooster crow. See, this is all happening while they have blindfolded Christ and are beating him. As they are beating him, Peter is denying that he knows him. You know, Judas regretted what he did. And he goes out and hangs himself. Peter regretted what he did and he goes out and bitterly weeps. What's the difference between those two guys? See, Judas's love for himself regretted what he did. He, he, has, he thinks so highly of himself. He can't believe that he took blood money to betray one who has done nothing wrong. Judas is just so wrapped up in his self-centeredness that he couldn't live with himself any longer. Just couldn't do it. So he goes out and hangs himself. Selfish. Selfish. Peter's love for Christ left him extremely despondent. Extremely despondent. Can't believe that he denied someone he truly loved. And we'll see that later in John 20 when he is racing with John to the tomb on Sunday morning when they have heard that the tomb is open and he is gone. And then we'll see it again in John 21 when Christ calls to him and calls him to ministry. And Peter goes, I'm just, I'm not worthy of it. Of course you're not worthy of it. No one is worthy of it. But Peter, I'm asking, do you love me? Yes, Lord. Do you? Yes. Do you? Yes. Then feed my sheep. And Peter will. Now, what are some of the lessons we could learn from this? I tell you, there are lots of lessons we can learn from Peter, aren't there? You know, number one is beware of your self-confidence. As soon as you think you stand, you will surely fall. Don't be getting too full of yourself. Be careful. Be careful when you think you're all that in a bag of chips. And if everybody else was just as holy as you, then how wonderful would the church be? Be careful. Be careful. Be careful when you're around dangerous people. You college students. You young people. You adults your workplace, you be careful. They can lead you to say and do things that you're going to regret later in life. They might even cause you to, to compromise who you are in Christ. You better be careful. Be real careful. And be careful to not do what you think is right when you ought to be doing what he says is right. And number four, be careful not to focus on what men are doing when you ought to be focusing on what the Lord would have you to do. Don't worry about what this guy over here is doing. You look at yourself. Evaluate yourself. And number six, be quick to repent and to examine whether or not you truly love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Don't get too caught up in who you are and what you do and what you've accomplished. Keep your focus on Christ. And he will lift you up. And he'll restore you and use you as he did Peter. It's not too late for any of us. 
really isn't. It doesn't matter how many times you have failed this past week, this past month, this past year. Today is a new day. Repent. Repent. And bow a knee before Christ as your Savior and your Lord. And if you need help with that, if you have questions, you can go to the Connect table. I promise there will be somebody back there to help you. You can come see me if you like. But we need to do this as a body, do we not? Stand with me as we pray. Father, thank you for your willingness to record the errors of men. It's actually encouraging. It's very encouraging to, to see someone like Peter who, who loved Christ with all of his heart. And yet, in a moment of weakness, was a miserable failure. And so as we look at him, we see ourselves. We also see, see, see our need to remain secure in Christ and in Christ alone and not according to men. Thank you, Lord, for reminding us that we too are often weak. We too are often prone to denials. We too have been through disasters of our faith. And yet, Father, we rejoice that Christ has always been faithful. Therefore, it is in him and him alone that we live and move and have our being. Thank you, Lord, that he is our Savior. And thank you, Lord, for the redemption that we have found in him, the new life that we now live in him to the glory of your holy name. For it's in him we pray.